You're making a record. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We're the band. We had a band powerful enough to turn goat piss into gasoline. And what do you guys think about that? What? Maybe we should make a record. Like actually make a record. A record, record, record. Yeah, that's what I mean. There, Morris speaking. You're listening to episode 124 of the Love That Album podcast. And if this is your first time, welcome to the show. We're going to discuss albums. That's what we do, hence the name. It's clever, Roos, you see. And on the other end of a Skype connection, I have my special guest for this time around, writer on the Prowler Needs a Jump film blog, Ms. Kerry Gately-Fristo. Welcome to the show, Kerry. Thank you. Thank you, Morris. Nice to be here. Wonderful to have you on. Now, this is your first time on this podcast, but we spoke a couple of times last year on the See Here film podcast. Now, what do we do? We discuss the devil and Daniel Johnson mm-hmm. and the Harry Nelson documentary. Yes, that's right. That was over a year ago. My goodness, why has it been that long before we've talked again? That's just not right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome this time around to discuss purely music, not film music or music-related film. We'll discuss music. We'll get in a couple of minutes as to how it is that you ended up on this particular episode. But how are things going for you over there in Massachusetts? How's things going with the film community? Oh, pretty well. There are all kinds of film festivals. It was kind of film festival season this spring. Unfortunately, I had to miss them. I got a new puppy, and so I can't do all the same things that I was doing in the past. And I hope that we won't hear from him <laughs> during the uh, podcast. Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff. They were just filming actually one of the X-Men movies right down the street from me. Okay. I don't even know which one. I'm not really a comic book movie person. Yep. But it's the same place. Have you seen Shutter Island? No, I have not. I have an allergic reaction to Leonardo DiCaprio. (laughs) I understand. Actually... I do like him in this. Uh, You know, he's not my favorite, but I really like Scorsese. They filmed it at Medfield State Hospital. It's an abandoned state hospital. It was a a mental hospital and a hospital for the criminally insane. So that was... Happily, right down the street from me. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> just in case I felt like, you know, dealing with any of my homicidal fantasies or anything like that and wanted to join some of the inmates. But I didn't, fortunately. But they did film some of the stuff there. And it's kind of neat to see a place you grew up near in a movie. Absolutely. I love watching films made here in Melbourne and recognizing the locations and working out, hang on, that bit and the next bit, they're at opposite ends of the city how did you get from there to there that's wrong (laughs) right exactly (laughs) definitely done that before so how are things with your blog writing i've sort of been having a look at prowler needs a jump and when was the last time you wrote something i I need to read more (laughs) more stuff from you what's happening i think i'm sort of not really on a not by choice but i'm on sort of hiatus because my job has just been so demanding lately that i just haven't been doing a lot of my own writing because i write for work i just get home and my brain is just burnt, you know. I understand. <laughs> so I have not. 
not been writing as much, although I have a couple of ideas for things that I would really like to start fleshing out again, because I feel like I'm at a place now where I can start writing again. Because, yeah, it's been months. I've looked at it and I was like, oh, my gosh, it's, <laughs> it's terrible. I have no new content. I feel awful. Get back to it. But for the listeners out there who think, well, I haven't read anything Kerry's written, so there's probably a backlog. Well, I would recommend it. So, <laughs> Kerry, the, the blog link details are? Prowler needs a jump at wordpress.com. And I write about a lot of different types of films. Everything from documentaries to, I have stuff from the 1920s on there, horror films, modern films, crime. I love the 70s, so I have a lot of 70s stuff in there. And some long-form articles about particular people. I wrote a nice article about Bruce Stern. I'm a big Bruce Stern fan. And uh, <laughs> and I wrote about the Harry Nielsen film. Yes. And yes. When, when we did that podcast, that doc, which really opened my eyes about him. It's so funny because now so many things hit me that he did. Amazing to me how much I didn't know about him until I saw that movie and until I talked with you guys mm. about the film and about Harry Nelson's career and everything. Yeah, so I've written, written about a whole bunch of different stuff. I like to write about weird little films. We should probably talk about what it is that we're going to be talking about. <laughs> All right. Okay. So for those of you who've actually looked at your podcast device of choice, you will see that this time around we're going to be discussing the 1972 release album from Todd Rundgren, a double album, something slash anything, or we'll just call it something anything. And that's what Kerry and I are here to shed some light on for you because we saw the light a little Todd Rundgren humor for you there <laughs> so what we'll do is uh, we'll go to a quick break Joanne will give you the contact details and then we'll come back and delve into some detail about all things Todd Rundgren and something anything in particular you're listening to Love That Album with Morris here in Melbourne and Kerry over there in Massachusetts we'll be back in a moment we hope you're enjoying the show you can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash lovethatalbum and start a music-related discussion. Hi, I'm John Waters. Hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Kuhn. Miguel Ferrer. This is Nancy Allen. Robert Davi. Richard Elfman. Ileana Douglas. Patrick Warburton. Dwing Hauser. Cliff DeYoung. Steve Railsback. Mr. D. William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemart since 1994. Since early 2011, I've been co-hosting the Projection Booth podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything. I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com. Music and movies. 
Movies and music. Join Morris, Tim and Bernie every month as they discuss music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Far out. out. here, Kerry over there, and the album this time around on the show is Something Anything by Todd Rundgren, released in February 1972. He produced it, played all the instruments for three sides of the double album, or one and a half CDs if that's how you got it. So many tracks if you're listening to it on Spotify or that sort of streaming thing. was recorded for the first three sides in Los Angeles at ID Studios and the final side with a band in Bearsville Studios, New York and the record plant in New York City. So before we start talking about the album itself, Kerry, I have to ask you, how were you first aware of Todd Rundgren? Was it through his production work? Was it through a specific album or a specific song? Um, I'd have to say it's probably just hearing uh, Hello, It's Me on the radio. That's probably the first song that I remember hearing of his. That's the one that I remember the most that introduced me to him. And then later I saw the light. Okay. So when you say you first heard Hello, It's Me, was that Golden Oldies radio or were you hearing it as a kid back in the day? I was hearing it as a kid on the radio, on regular radio, because I came out in, what, 1972? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I can just remember hearing it on the radio, not really knowing who he was or anything, hearing the name and saying, okay, hello, it's me by Todd Rundgren, and that's it, and not really knowing anything much more about him until much, much later. So yeah, no, I, I can't say that I'm somebody who followed him from when I was five years old or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> I don't have that, <laughs> that background, but then years later, my husband is a massive fan and had all the albums. This one and I think Runt were particular favorites of his. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I really got to know him a little bit more in depth. How about you? Well, this is a bit of an awkward show because when you sort of listen to a show like this, you presume that the host is a longtime fan and knows a ton of music by the artist under question and really it's only been like the last two years or something like that that I've started following him as a musician I've sort of more been aware of him as a producer years and years ago I got into the tubes and hi Heather Drain out there if you're listening and there was an (laughs) album of the tubes that I was a big fan of called Remote Control and he was a producer of that of course about six years later he produced the nadir of the tubes output an album called love bomb and I think just take away the word love and bomb was a little bit more (laughs) accurate once again my apologies to Heather because I think she sees something good in every Tubes album but she knows how I feel about that record so it's okay and also being an XTC fan I knew the stories behind Skylarking as well and how Andy Partridge and Todd Rundgren 
didn't really get along. Although I believe that from a documentary that came out a year or so ago about XTC, I think, you know, Colin Moulding said, well, you know, I didn't have the problems that Andy did. And, you know, we got along quite well, but it was two brilliant musical minds clashing. And supposedly Andy wanted to keep doing multiple takes of every song to get it absolutely perfect. And Todd would say, no, that one was perfectly fine. Let's just move on. I believe that's how they clashed. I was sort of more aware of him for years as a producer rather than the musician side. I mean, like you, I knew Hello, It's Me and I Saw the Light, a couple of the really, really big songs, but I didn't sort of go out to follow him as an album artist until maybe about two years ago. I found a copy of the Bearsville album's box set going stupidly cheap on CD, not on record. I'm very much a CD guy. I love my records, but that's a discussion for another day. The CD box set of Bearsville, the company that he signed up to, did like a ton of records through Bearsville, which, you know, and he also became like something of an in-house producer and produced a lot of albums for their label as well as recording his own stuff. So I've basically gone through all the CDs in this box, but confessedly, I don't know the albums inside out. The, you know, maybe two or three that I played over and over and over again and the rest are, oh yeah, for a rainy day, I'll come back to that. I've listened to them all, but Something Anything, which was the big one, is one that yeah. I've played a lot. So how familiar are you with the album collections? Out of any of his other albums, are there things that you dug? Are you a fan of Utopia? I think I mentioned Runt. That oh, yes, one, yep. I, I kind of like that one. Be Nice to Me, I really, really like. No catch, no strings, none of the usual. That's another one. That's one that I really like. And then I, I'm trying to think of what album this is on, but later on he did Just One Victory, which I think might be Utopia, and then A Dream Goes On Forever. Really pretty songs. I know you're a purist and you're really good at knowing what record is on what album, but I don't always no. know that. I just know. <laughs> no, Sometimes I just know songs that I really like by people that I've just heard. I can't place what album they were on. I know Just One Victory is really good, and I, I want to say that that is a Utopia song. And, and that's a really good one. And it's sort of anthemish, which is not normally his thing. Mm -hmm. But, oh, it's on A Wizard, A True Star. So it is just a Rundgren album. It's actually both a Utopia song and a Rundgren solo song from A Wizard, A True Star. So I wasn't totally wrong. <laughs> and then A Dream Goes On Forever. It's just sweet. A million old soldiers will fade away. But a dream goes on. It's very sweet and just the, it's very melodic. It's a very pretty song. It's another one that I really like. He's interesting. It's not something that I've heard him do in concert. I've not been to a Todd Rundgren concert. I've been to see him with Ringo Starr's All-Star Band. I saw Rundgren perform about a year ago. He did a series of shows, I think maybe just on the East Coast, but he had a local pickup band led by a guy called Davey Lane. And his last album sounded almost like a calling card. 
hard as if to say, Todd, if you're ever back here, please pick me, pick me to be your backup guitarist. It sounds so Rundgren influenced. And so, yeah, he and his band were the backup band and got to see him in a pub here in Melbourne. And it was a really, really fantastic show. He came on stage looking like he'd just come off the beach wearing a singlet with a Union Jack. <laughs> He might have been wearing a pair of shorts, I can't remember, but very, very charismatic, and it was a fantastic show. I'm so glad I got to see him in circumstances like that rather than in a big concert hall. Right. He was just casual, and he could sing songs that I might sort of talk about a little bit later on. Below me, (laughs) you hardly even know me. Not appropriate at the start of the show, but might bring to attention later on in the show. But yeah, yeah, very charismatic and a lot of fun. He really had the audience eating out of the palm of his hand in a way that I don't think he might have had if he'd done it in a big theatre or, or certainly not a stadium. wanted to talk a little bit about the reputation that he sort of has. I mean, he seems to be one of those guys who is loved or is hated. Well, maybe not hated, but loved or dismissed because I'm on a couple of music discussion forums and he seems to be the sort of guy who people just either love and respect him for his craftsmanship and his musicianship and everything that he can do. And then there are some people who say, yeah, he's just that middle of the road guy. Yeah. In my listening to him for the last two years, there's songs which I like more than others or albums that I like more than others but I think just sort of dismissing him as oh yeah that middle of the road guy is really not giving him due respect okay so a couple of records that I might not necessarily have an affinity with I know there's one called Healing which I know that Heather wanted to discuss so sorry Heather but it's got these heavy synthesized stylings which doesn't necessarily appeal to me terribly much but underneath those synthesizers the songs still sound like Todd Rundgren's songs and I have to sort of give him the salute because he was doing that album like in the early 80s when the new technology was taking over and he thought right well I want to go where the 80s is going to go so you, you sort of have to respect him for that you know he wanted to experiment and he did that album like after Bearsville uh, of all acapella arrangements and the production on that is a little bit too slick for my liking and I'm a huge acapella fan but I guess a lot of acapella went that way so maybe he preempted what came afterwards then there's the ever popular tortured artist album which has a song which I believe is played at sporting arenas in the states bang the drum all day yeah I believe that that's a love it or hate it sort of thing. Once again, not an album I particularly care for, but I respect him for all that he does. You know, he plays all these multiple instruments and he explores music for its own sake. No, definitely. Yeah, I agree with you on the love him or dismiss him kind of thing, because I've seen both ends of that too. Like, oh, Todd Rundgren, yeah, you know, he had those couple of songs that everyone's heard of. I guess he has those albums where he plays all the instruments. Oh, that's cute. I mean, I just feel like for some reason people are almost thinking of it as a gimmick. Yep. I didn't get that impression at all. I mean, my impression was that 
He was a musician who was not thrilled with the production values he was seeing when he was in the studio. He was not thrilled with the way things were being done or he wanted to do things differently. So he decided to put his money where his mouth was, I guess, and, mm. and just do it all himself. I have to have some respect for that, that he was able to do it, for one thing, to play all those different instruments well enough so that he made albums that were very good. But going back to Nilsson, the backing vocals alone, the fact that he does these harmonies with himself on these backing vocals, really neat stuff. I mean, just the vocal stuff is kind of cool. And you can say that his vocal style is not super polished, and it's not. But I find that appealing. I find that very heartfelt. It makes the song seem more authentic mm -hmm. because it sounds like it's something he's actually feeling. I mean, I, whenever I think of his songs, I think of angst bordering on whininess sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but the angst really is, for the most part, more angst than anything else. You know, it could be like Joni Mitchell, like you only want her to write songs when she's just broken up with, a, with someone, right? <laughs> <laughs> because then she has these fantastic, heartbreaking songs that are just beautiful and lyrical and gorgeous and everything. And when she's in love, they're sort of not as exciting. And I feel like that might be the way Todd Rundgren works, because a lot of his songs seem to be about getting dumped, dumping somebody, finding out that the person you're with is not really the person you want to be with, or the person you're with finding out you're not the person right. <laughs> that she thought you were. And those are my favorite songs of his, the ones that are really heartfelt and angsty and, oh my God, I turned around and there you were and wow, okay, you really are pretty cool. And I was fooling around with all these chicks and uh, I see the light, you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You also feel like he may not be the one you want to have a romantic relationship with because... <laughs> He might be a little difficult, but I feel like the fact that he isn't the shined up, prettied up singer adds a lot of realness to his music that you wouldn't get if you were overproduced. Even though one of his things is production, they're not overproduced. And what you were saying, that he possibly had disputes with the XTC guy because the XTC guy wanted to do 57 takes and he wanted to do it in two, that's the sense you get from the albums. I mean, I know he pl he's playing all the instruments on it, and you do get the sense that he's like, okay, next. <laughs> Not that he doesn't care, but that he's like, that's fine. I read somewhere where he said that he only picked up the drums and bass for the first time before recording something, anything. Me smelleth some pork in there i don't know i'm not sure i'm not sure i i'm not sure i buy into that but he does sound like a drummer who it's not his first instrument but he doesn't sound like he's just picking this up for the first time if it was he truly is a genius but he's a genius a wizard and a true star Let's sort of like link this. You already sort of going to talk about how he plays all these instruments. And I'm trying to think about some of the other one-man bands out there. I mean, there are other people who are multi-instrumentalists but aren't doing every instrument on the album. So, you know, you've got people like Paul McCartney who right. learned how to play everything. And a guy who we actually discussed in this very podcast a couple of years ago, Emmett Rhodes, who is from a songwriting perspective, at least in terms of the ballads, probably the closest to Rundgren, at least at this phase of his career. 
career. Stevie Wonder, who could play everything. Oh, yeah. Prince, and even though he didn't do it on Who albums, but you know, Pete Townsend, who did all these demos in his home studio. I don't know. Have you ever heard any of the Scoop albums? No, I haven't. Basically, years after the fact, I don't know, maybe to counterbalance what the bootleggers were doing, Pete Townsend went and released maybe about two or three albums called Scoop, and they're all just his home demos. But there's still a ton of them out there in bootleg land that he's never released officially. And it's him playing drums and bass and guitar and piano and doing all the vocals, all the harmony vocals. And they sound great. And you listen to them and you just sort of think, wow, what an amazing process that he has. But Rundgren, for me, is king of the one-man band. I mean, to be fair, between Townsend and Rundgren, Rundgren was working in a professional studio. Townsend was just working with his tapes in his basement at home. So he didn't have the studio trickery that Rundgren could employ. And we, We've already gone and said here that Rundgren's still not making it, at least on those early albums, trying to make it sound overly slick or overly produced, but there's still things that he could do in a professional studio, but Townsend couldn't do. But just in terms of scope and ambition, the two of them and Emmett Rhodes achieved an amazing sound with what they could do. Also find it interesting that you make the comparison to Harry Nelson, as we were discussing this a year ago. He was someone who started out sounding not necessarily slick, but absolutely perfect, but as the drugs and alcohol kicked in by the time he got to the Pussycats album and when John Lennon was with him and there were the Hollywood vampires it sounds absolutely sloppy but that's the album I almost love the best because it sounds so sloppy you get those early Baroque pop days and he did like you can't do that the Beatles song and he incorporates vocal interludes from about 20 other Beatles songs it's such a clever arrangement and it's so perfect seven years later would never have done that because he was just let's put it down on tape and that was it and right you sort of wonder whether Todd Rundgren had he met Harry Nelson whether they probably could have worked together well and it's interesting because I kept thinking of Nelson as I was researching Rundgren wondering if they had met at any time imagine they must have met at least I don't know maybe not because it does seem like there's a lot of things in common just the oddball and the fact that he is kind of an iconoclast he plays in concerts unlike Nelson I mean Nelson wouldn't really do concerts and that was one of his idiosyncrasies but Rundgren has his own different kind of stuff and he's a very indie kind of guy and he could easily if you listen to some of these Hello It's Me and I Saw the Light the really mm. poppy kind of songs he could easily have gone super poppy all the way through and made a, just a buttload of money you know because the songs are really terrific they're very well structured they're good pop songs but they have a little more heart to them they would be like pop songs plus you know I don't know you know pop songs on steroids or something right I mean he's got uh, some albums where he does one song for 35 minutes you know and, and <laughs> he chose to take his own path obviously and not go the pop route I sort of compare him in a way to Neil Young in terms of where he wanted to head so I believe that after making something anything that he sort of thought well yeah maybe this is too straight ahead too poppy and it's we're, we're going to make the case that this is a hugely 
diverse album, but his next album, A Wizard of True Star, and he goes more into a proggy direction. He said, right, I, I want to go somewhere else. And Neil Young had famously said about Harvest that he was so much in the middle of the road and then he wanted to head to the ditch. And so what does he do? He goes and records On the Beach and Tonight's the Night. Todd Rundgren starting to bring out his inner Frank Zappa after this. Yeah, with, yeah, uh, you can you can hear it. Yeah, you've got that as a comparison as well. You sort of got to admire a guy who says, I want to explore all facets of music. I'm not content to do the same thing over and over again, even though it might bring me a buckload of money. But what is the point of being a musician if you're not going to try something different? Absolutely. As I said earlier, I have the CD of Something Anything, and it's a fairly bare-bones one that came in the box set, so there's none of the liner notes, and I believe that there were some very, very funny liner notes that came with the original album. A friend of mine actually found the liner notes online, or rather a scan of the album cover, but it was a little difficult to read. But one thing that I was able to get was that he gave each side of the album its own name, or its own description. Right. Side one is a bouquet of ear-catching melodies. And that's, well, you can't argue with that. Side two, he calls it the cerebral side. I want to come back to that. Side three, the kid goes heavy. Side four is called Baby Needs a New Pair of Snakeskin Boots, in brackets, a pop operetta. I'd suggest the first side is completely accurate. As I said, we'll come back to the cerebralness or other. Side three starts heavy with Black Mariah, but it also has songs like Marlene, which is as lovely and gentle as anything that you'd hear on a Beach Boys album like Sunflower. Heavy? Uh, I don't know. Side four, a pop operetta. Maybe it's just Todd playing with our expectations, but except for the last two songs on the album, which I see a story-like connection. Well, I, I don't get it, but good on you, Todd. That's just Rundgren being Rundgren. That's not to say that there's no level of diversity on this album, and we'll certainly be getting into that. I would say that this is his white album, in a way. Maybe the diversity isn't as obvious as going from Obladi Oblada to Revolution 9, but there is definitely stylistic shifts and lyrical shifts that we get through the album and that's a topic of conversation I certainly want to get into but I, I sort of want to ask you if you were to encapsulate if you had like just two minutes and we don't we've got a lot more time but if you were having a conversation with someone who said I've never heard Rangren why should I listen to something anything well as you said I mean I do think it's a really diverse album it runs the gamut from really popular things that made the billboard charts and rightfully so I mean they're pop songs but they have a little something in there a little meat to them there's a m- bunch of different styles in there I mean he's got hard rock He's got some decent guitar solos in there. I really like the bass work in Hello, It's Me. If you're a fan of percussion, you're going to like it because he likes to play with different types of percussion because he doesn't just play, you know, a trap set. He's got bells and different other percussive instruments in there. It just varies so much. I just think that it's worth listening to because you can almost see the inner workings of someone's brain. And this is a brain that you actually would want to meet. This is a person who's got a lot going on. 
there are songs in here that, like the song of the Viking reminds me of if Warren Zevon were doing Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah, the Gilbert and Sullivan thing is something that definitely went through my head. Yeah, and he apparently was a big fan when he was younger. Mm. He grew up on that because his parents were really into Gilbert and Sullivan. And so the, the small album collection that they had had Gilbert and Sullivan and some classical stuff and some Broadway show tunes. And that's really what he grew up listening to at first because that's what was at home. So he just loved the Gilbert and Sullivan and I could definitely hear that. But the harmonies, and it's not always a harmony. Sometimes it's just many voices singing the same thing, singing the same notes, but or many of his voice yeah, <laughs> singing yeah, yeah. the same notes. They're just really pretty. They're really melodic and he's got a real knack for a sad lyric. Oh yeah. Without being too saccharine? Yeah, it's not. Like one more day. is a really neat song that, to be honest, until I really got into it and started listening to it to get ready for this podcast, I had heard it, but not for years. It's got a really nice harmony in it, but it's a sad song of one more day, still no word. It sounds like it's a guy who's away in the army and he hasn't gotten a letter. Yep. He hasn't heard from his sweetheart. And, you know, I just got to make it through one more day, still no word. Just one more day, no word. But it says everything. He doesn't have to spell it out. He doesn't have to spoon feed it to you for you to understand what's going on and for you to feel for that person. And just the way he sings it and his plaintive sort of voice, it's quite lovely. But there were a lot of songs here that I discovered, rediscovered, I guess, that I hadn't heard in a long time. That One More Day was great. Couldn't I just tell you... great song that's a great and that's really poppy it has some of this a similar beat to like i saw the light like it sounds like he wrote it around the same time i mean it's on the same album but i mean it sounds like he just took two things of ritalin and he wrote <laughs> that's what he's quoted as saying yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> no he wrote i saw the light and then he went and took another pill and then he wrote couldn't i just tell you <laughs> because it, they sound very similar to me like the beat of them and the and just the background and all that kind of stuff but that's okay i mean they're both really good and they're totally different songs but isn't that an interesting thing that no matter how diverse he gets on this album whether it's the beautiful heartbreaking songs or something like black mariah or anything else that you will get into he still sounds like todd rangren this album he yeah. has that melodic flair the songs are different but they all sound like they belong in this collection. It's interesting to me that he did a double album at this time in his career. Well, he said that he originally was going to release this album as a single album, but he just kept coming up with songs. And so I thought, oh, I'll just keep recording these. Why not? He was originally recording these songs in Los Angeles, where he lived at the time. And then there was an earthquake, which put healthy dose of fear into him. So he moved over to New York, recorded that last side with a bunch of musicians, you know, change of location, change of circumstances. 
thought I might as well record some songs with other people. Right. And that's where side four comes into the picture. And the interesting thing that I think about this album is this is not to take anything away from the musicians who he had on side four of the album because they're all fantastic. I mean, you had you know, people like Ben Keith who played for Neil Young, the Sales Brothers, Soupy Sales Sons who went to play on with Iggy Pop later on right, on the Lust right. for Life album. Amazing musicians. But I don't think that there's any inconsistency in sound between when he's playing with the musicians on side four of the album to how he sounds on the rest of the album. Yeah, sure, the drumming might be a little bit more professional, but it doesn't go a million miles away. It's not like he's becoming Terry Bozio or something like that. Right. Doing all, all this weird proggy sort of stuff. But for all the slightly more professional touches, they're little flourishes that maybe Rundgren couldn't do if they weren't his first instruments, but they're keeping to the spirit of the first three sides of the album. And that's a real testament to his own playing. Yeah. Um, so you were mentioning a couple of the love songs that you really loved and the ones that touch your heart. And for me, I think an example of something that's beautiful and heartbreaking is the second song on the album. It wouldn't have made any difference. went on to do other songs that you could sort of say yeah it sounds like they belong in the same space but yet each one has its own melodic touch and so i'm thinking of songs like can we still be friends or even the utopia song love is the answer and i've been trying to work out what makes these songs connected and i'd love to discuss this with someone who's a songwriting professional but thing that comes to my ears and i once again i'm no guitarist and i'm no music theorist but what i think is the main just seven chords and if you're a musician out there you'll know what i'm talking about here it's a hard thing to describe if you're not but you just you'll hear it you'll understand so there'd just be the major chords and there's a lot of these songs are major key chords but there's something about the major seventh chords which is a common thing on a lot of songs in this album and a lot of songs on Rundgren albums in general and all i can sort of say in non-technical terms because i don't have the technical terms for it but there's just something about it that sounds heartbreakingly beautiful and gives you that awe factor. Mm -hmm. Well, he says that. I found a quote that said he wrote his songs quickly, noting they were all basically starting out with his C major seventh, and I'd start moving my hand around in predictable patterns until a song came out. Well, there you go. I, I guessed right. <laughs> I, I didn't so even read that. You're right on. How about that? <laughs> but you know, this song, it wouldn't have made any difference. It sounds like classic Philadelphia soul. And I mean, he was from Philadelphia originally, I mm -hmm. believe. Yeah. Even though he was living and recording this in Los Angeles. But this song, it sounds like it's his tribute to Motown. And I can just imagine a group like the, the Four Tops or The Temptations giving this the full treatment and 
having the choreographed stage presence. There's just such a style and elegance to this performance. It's just all the more impressive that it's just this one guy doing, doing the whole thing, but it sounds so full and he has a real sense of dynamic as well as you know, the, the beauty of the harmonies. And it's just so fully realized. And once again, all the more magnificent that it's just the one person. He's got the soul in it as well as the technical instrumentation. Just something I really, really love. That is a, it's a great tune. That's one of my favorites on the album as well. One thing that I believe that Rundgren had said in terms of wanting to go in a different direction after this album with A Wizard of True Star was too many people were saying, oh yeah, he's so influenced by Carol King. I think he's, he's on the record saying, yeah, I admire Carol King, but that's not all what I'm about. Personally, I thought that if I was someone who was a songwriter and had been told that, yeah, you sound like Carol King, I would have said, yep, I've made it. One of the great, that's true. One of the great brill-building songwriters uh, wrote for tons of people, and really, they all sound different. They've all put their own touches. I don't know why you'd want to walk away from that comparison. I mean, I mean okay, maybe in a way it's you know, good because he gave us some different stuff, showed some more diversity doing, going down the prog road, but I'd never consider being compared to Carol King a bad thing. You know, she's really queen of songwriters in my book. No, absolutely. I, I, I don't know why. I mean, maybe he thought it was her stuff was softer than he wanted to be associated with because I know later he ends up, when he's, like, when he's working for Bearsville, he does stuff with uh, Paul Butterfield blues band and what James Cotton and bands like that so maybe that's you know in the band bands like that maybe he just wanted to be considered edgier than Carol King right that's, right. that's well, the only well, thing I can think of well this album came out a year or maybe six months after Tapestry had come out and had exploded and I don't know maybe he was weary of coming into a shadow maybe if Tapestry hadn't just come out and he was just being compared to her songwriting for other artists in the 60s then maybe he wouldn't have been so defensive about it maybe he'd hit me in the jaw or something like that said i never got defensive about it but but yeah what you say is true because he did have edgier stuff and even on this album yeah but i'd be putting on every album a sticker that said compared to carol king you know that's a badge of honor (laughs) as far as i'm concerned i mean in terms of songwriting a hundred percent yeah i absolutely agree with you this album is really interesting because there is as we both pointed out now that it changes so much because cold morning light that is Mm. carol king I listened to that and I went 70s Carol King. That is right. like my first impression of that song was 70s Carol King, as opposed to girl group 60s Brill Building Carol King. Well, I um, saw the light would be Brill Building Carol King. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. And I just love that song. Yeah, some of them, I, I can't say that I love every song. You know, I mean, obviously, you're not going to love every song on the album, but there are a couple that just, I don't know, <laughs> piss Aaron. <laughs> That comes into a category all its own. I do like that. But (laughs) one thing I want to discuss is 
the inverted commas peculiar songs on the album i mean mean, that's recollection of school days and some interesting that's a great character study musically i like it it doesn't sound like a typical rundgren song but i respect him for it and lyrically i find it a novel take i mean you know there's so many songs where people recall their school days uh, Mm -hmm. with such affection or they outright reject it and say yeah fuck school school's out forever but Mm -hmm. this is something in between and i like how he took a different tack you know recalling all his friends who they defied school by pissing in the hallway or <laughs> smoking bongs in the toilet or something like that. Yeah. I mean, because I took notes and I wrote, Steeler's Wheel meets Fat Albert. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine that as a, as a get-together. <laughs> hey, 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 I'm stuck in the middle with you. I don't know if you got the Fat Albert cartoon. Yeah, we did. Yep. So all of his friends had goofy names. And that's what I kept thinking about was how he uh, okay. named everybody yep. these yep. funny names because one guy ate too much. He was, I forget what he was. He was a pig or something. And, you know, so that's what I was thinking about Fat Albert. And the, for some reason, there was something about, especially the instrumental at the very beginning that reminded me of Steeler's Wheel. Okay. That just stuck in my head. I don't know why, but it did. been compared to Carol King, as we said, but he started out in a band that couldn't have been more further away, I think, in some regards. Let's just talk for a couple of minutes about Naz. And I know that if you're listening to this show for the first time and you're thinking, when are they going to discuss something, anything in depth? It's coming, it's coming. But this is how this show writes. We go from subject to subject. Have you listened to much of, of Naz, his band that he did before he went solo? Not a whole lot. I, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm mostly a, the Rundgren person. Right, right. I knew only one song up until doing the prep for this show and that was Open My Eyes because that appears on the Nuggets box set of which I cherish that box set of all this great garage rock I urge anyone out there who has not heard Nuggets go search it out but uh, Open My Eyes an amazing rock song in the vein of pre-Tommy Who but I thought right I'd go and listen to the first two Naz albums they made three but the first two, uh, the ones that Rundgren appeared on. And it's interesting, you, you said before that he wasn't happy with a lot of production techniques done by others. And I think it was specifically the production work on Naz he was not happy with. I mean, they sound great to my ears, but I'm no audiophile. It sounds vibrant and exciting to me. So I've heard the stories that he didn't like the production work and they were not crazy about his ballad type songs. Most of the stuff that's on these albums are the sort of rockier Who type numbers. And Hello It's Me originally started out as a Naz song. It's unusual that he ended up sort of recording it again two years later on Something Anything. Have you heard the Naz version of Hello, It's Me? I have not. I'm on a music forum called the Steve Hoffman Music Forums. It's really excellent. A lot of diverse topics covered on there. 
and I did a search to see whether anyone had sort of gone and discussed any Rundgren stuff and there was one topic completely devoted to what's better the NAS version or the Todd Rundgren solo version it really it's apples and oranges in a way I love them both if you're gonna tie my hand round behind my back I'd probably say at a pinch the NAS version but the NAS version it's slower, it's probably half the speed. Not that the Rungren Solo version is an up-tempo song, but the NAS version is slower and it starts out with just a pair of bongos being played and can't remember if it's a marimba that's being played as well. That's not the Carol King moment. It's actually yeah, more of a Beach Boys moment. It sounds like Beach Boys circa Sunflower or Surf's Up, that sort of thing. I, I sort of think of the song Till I Die. Oh, in wow. That, in that regard. There's these gorgeous harmony and it just sort of builds up a little bit. It's just really, really special to me. I think there's just the one dynamic in the Rundgren version. And I'm getting picky because I'm trying to sort of say, right, okay, which one I justify as being my favourite over the other, but they're both wonderful. Another comparison, it's sort of like, you know, Don't Stand So Close to Me, original versus 86. And I know that got dissed a lot, but I really like it. And there was sort of something I read where maybe Sting said this, where Don't Stand So Close to Me, the original musically was from the perspective of the teacher and version 86 was more dreamy and more from the perspective of the student. I mean, both creepy when you think about it. Yeah. But 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 as a character study, one's taken from one perspective, one's taken from the other perspective. And I think Hello, It's Me, it sounds like it's done musically from two different perspectives rather than just sort of being, hey, we're going to do it differently. But yeah, I really love the NAS version. So yeah, maybe give that a listen after yeah. the recording. I'd be interested to know what you thought. Yeah, I want to hear it. Now I'm going, oh, darn, I wish I had heard it. <laughs> so we've been just discussing about the diversity of the album there's the ballads and the pretty songs and the songs of heartbreak you've also gone and mentioned song of the viking i am a viking of some note loose my name and here i float out on the sea in a great big boat and i'm no one who beats the drum and time to stop the oars and drive our galleons on and while we rode we had our song and we had He seems to include Gilbert and Sullivan-like songs on some of his albums. There's a song on another album called Onomatopoeia, where he does do the Gilbert and Sullivan lyric type thing. And it really comes down to more of Gilbert and Sullivan from a lyrical perspective rather than from a musical perspective. The Song of the Viking still sounds like a Todd Rundgren pop song, and I would have liked it if he would have maybe rented a string quartet to give it something of that classical feel. Like he'd gone and said that he learnt in the sixth grade, he and a friend, to show just how clever they were. They learnt a whole Gilbert and Sullivan operetta so they could show off at school just how smart they were. I mean, I, I wouldn't have been surprised if it would have gotten them beaten up rather than... Yeah, right. Sort of- showed how clever they were exactly but but i think you know as a grown-up where he can sort of think well you know it's my album i can do what i want i'm just wondering 
why it is that he sort of didn't follow through musically rather than just sort of make it like another Todd Rundgren pop song. I think that was sort of a missed opportunity. It's a great song, but yeah, maybe not part of the do-it-yourself ethos by getting other people to play uh, stringed instruments. But I think if he's really going to go for the Gilbert and Sullivan effect, that would have been the way to go, in, in my opinion. Oh, that makes sense. I actually think that might have been a little too on the nose for him. I mean, I get a real Gilbert and Sullivan vibe because of the wordiness of it, and that's not normally a Rundgren thing that I've seen. He doesn't have a lot of lyrics. He doesn't have, like, lyric-laden songs too much. And this one really is... It's kind of interesting, and just the way he says out on the sea in a great big boat, you know? Yes. <laughs> For some reason, just the fact that that's sort of goofy made me think of Warren Zevon, and it also made me think of Roland, the Headless yes, Thompson yes. Gunner. I thought, yeah, you know, he's just having fun with a different genre. For some reason, he thought of a Viking and decided to write a song about him, and he thought it, he'd do it in the style of Gilbert and Sullivan-ish. Sure. You know, if Gilbert and Sullivan were in a rock band later on or something, yeah. you know, and um, so I feel like it's kind of fun. I enjoyed that one. and But I can see where it would take on a whole different sound with a string background if he had that. And I guess he has done Gilbert and Sullivan songs. I, I don't know if he's done them in concert. I think he has. He's like done something from Iolanth. I guess that's what they said that he had done. Huh. Something I was reading was saying that in concert he had just they just he just broke into a song from Gilbert and Sullivan in the middle of the show. <laughs> Still wanting <laughs> Which, to impress people. I guess you know. To be honest, I get that vibe from him. That one of the reasons he wanted to play all the instruments is because he could. You know. And he just wanted everyone to know that he could play all, <laughs> all right. the instruments. There's an aspect of no one can do this as well as me, so I'm just going to do everything. But that said, he does such a great job that <laughs> maybe he's right. Another song on the album that I think will display the diversity and moves away from the lovelorn, woe is me, heartbreak type songs is I Went to the Mirror. Now, that's a song that immediately follows Viking, and this is part of the cerebral side of the album. And I'll come shortly to notes on that I have about, about is it cerebral, what is it, but... I went to the mirror. First thing I heard this when I heard the whole album a couple of years ago was it sounds like he's either Captain Beefheart or I could say his inner Tom Waits, but Tom Waits wasn't around as a recording artist yet. But there's something Tom Waits in. But yeah, I'd say this is his Captain Beefheart moment on the album. And my first thought was, oh yeah, this is a really funny lyric. But you could also sort of say, well, maybe it's his William Burroughs moment. And it's someone who's on a drug trip and everything's accentuated. You know, he says, I went to the mirror this morning. I looked in the mirror instead. The first thing to come to focus was a face wrapped all around my head. And I'm also thinking, well, you know, I wish Bill Plimpton 
had made an animation with this song in the background. It's just so bizarre. <laughs> and like nothing else on the album. Yeah, it's definitely unusual. Do you find this to be a funny song or a drug song or something altogether different? I don't know that I think of it as a drug song, although I guess it could be. I mean, I just feel like it's one of those questioning songs. He's just trying to figure out what have I been doing all this time kind of thing. You know, so he's getting sort of philosophical in a way and questioning his his own life, his own being. And then he's doing it in a humorous way to some extent because I feel like it's a serious song, but mm. it's one, he's one of those guys that would make a joke to lighten things like during a serious conversation, which is not a crime. I do it myself. So I, I totally get that. That's just my impression of him is that, that he's having a very serious who am I moment but he doesn't want it to sound too who am I, so he throws a few jokes in there. Right. Yeah, just when you're sort of thinking, what is this guy going through? And then he goes and adds in the line, on my chin I discover one lone red and arrogant zit. I don't care who you are. You know, if you use the word zit, I'm going to laugh. That's it. I don't care what the context is. You know, the word zit is... And actually, it surprised me because I thought zit was like a Commonwealth word. I didn't think Americans use the word zit, but... No, no, we do. I looked at my hair. I think I'm going bald. My teeth look like plastic and chips. It's just strange. I don't know what even that... <laughs> this could be his version of psychedelia. It could be an identity crisis. Yeah. It could just be, hey, I like this guy Frank Zappa. I think I'll try and write something like him. Or, as I said, a very Beefheart moment. But Beefheart beef and Zappa yeah. had that connection, yeah. So. Well, yeah, and, and and I've read stuff comparing him to Zappa in a, in a way, in some things. And I guess, you know, having a 35-minute one-sided song on, on one side of an album and, and the production stuff, I guess that could be Zappa-esque. But I don't get a lot of Zappa out of him except for in You Left Me Sore. terms of the diversity of this album so you know we've already sort of gone and discussed the Gilbert and Sullivan connection we've gone and discussed this Beefheart style and both of those a million miles away from the Carol King connection so even before he goes into the next album he's showing hey I do a lot of things but having the indulgence of having a double album will allow you that you know he had his mm. country song if you will with Piss Aaron but the end of side four of the album has two songs which musically I think are in the right order but lyrically are not in the right order and I'm talking about You Left Me Sore and Slut yeah. um, which sorry if anyone out there takes offence really it's it's Todd's song right? we're just discussing it okay you sort of got to wonder the guy who started off this album with a song of love in a declaration I saw the light in her eyes and finishes it off with she may be a slut but she looks good to me right you sort of wonder, well, like any human, we're not just one thing. There might be this wonderful side of us, this lovely, caring side of us, and then there's also the dark side of us. Or Then again, it could just be a songwriting exercise. It's just something that he does. You know, he's a man of many moods and says, oh, I'll write a song about this. And, uh, and sometimes it's also about... It's not me, Todd Rundgren, singing this. It's a character I'm inhabiting. Right, that's right. Um, you have You Left Me Sore, which sounds like <laughs> something that Beavis and Butthead would do. 
a big fan of it if it was more metal. But slut in terms of this story would be coming before. Well, you know, you've gone and been very disparaging about someone. You, you want to have sex? You want to jump their bones? Well, this is what happened. <laughs> I like to see these story connections. I wonder whether Todd would say, man, you're reading too much into this. Or he'd say, that's exactly what I thought. But you can't end the album on You Left Me Sore musically. It sounds almost musically like a Carole King song, but it's his Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> I don't know if it's just supposed to be what it is or if there's an element of double entendre in there. Or No, no, it's just a song about VD. It's not a song about You Left Me Mad, You Left Me Upset. No, it is just a VD song. And, <laughs> well, I mean, I... I feel like it definitely has a few meanings because he talks about getting dumped all the time and getting mistreated by his romantic partners and stuff you know be nice to me and you know implies that he's been through a lot or or you know he's been dumped or he's been mistreated before you left me sore definitely i mean he says love is infectious and i was yes. a victim <laughs> so i mean absolutely there's the vd thing but there's also the um, heartbreak thing and the pain of breakup or whatever or, or mistreatment. But this one is one of the ones that, that I really thought was Zappa-esque in the chorus. When they sing You Left Me Sore, that sounded just like the backup singers in Frank Zappa. Right, to, right, right. And, and then You Left Me Sore, that's very Zappa-esque too. He sang quite a few songs about such things. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> so I, I could see him making these, a double entendre type song about a venereal disease of some sort. But it's a, it's a good song. <laughs> it is a great song. Yeah. I didn't care for Slut as much. See that girl! didn't like the song as well i mean you know whatever the title i was like oh great but <laughs> <laughs> super you know but i just don't think it's that great a song they're just having a bit of a strong blues infected boogie type of song right, which was right. a common thing in the early 70s and you thought right well i've had enough of these pretty major seventh key carol king-esque type songs now it's time to rock out and that was one of the songs that did it it's no wolfman jack but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, actually, while we've been sort of just talking away about this, something came to my mind which sounds obvious is that Rundgren must have been an influence on Ben Folds. In fact, now that I think of it, they might have even toured together. I know he certainly toured with Joe Jackson, but when you think about it from the second Ben Folds album, Whatever and Ever Are Men, there's the heartbreak of his most popular song. Brick. Mm -hmm. Folds has gone and written a lot of songs about love and heartache over the years, but the sadness of Brick was unlike anything else on that album. He immediately follows that up with Song for the Dumped. So you know, that's showing his angry side. Don't piss me off, don't piss me off. But Song for the Dumped is like his version of Rundgren's Slut. I yeah. think in a way give me my money back you bitch and don't forget to give me back my black t-shirt yeah well going back to his unwillingness to be compared favorably to Carole King he's very good at the pretty songs he's very good at melody he's very good at these poppy songs that are sort of heartbreaking and sad and make you think oh poor Todd <laughs> 
poor Todd's heartbroken. He's been dumped again. But then he has an edge to him. He has to throw that in there. So in this album, you see that where he has the very pretty songs and the very heartbreaking songs. And then he's got to throw this stuff in there. Hey, there's a slut. I'm going to take advantage of her because I'm a guy. But I mean, I feel like perhaps he felt that was necessary so he wouldn't be thought of as Dan Fogelberg II or something. Or Or James Tyler. (laughs) Right. Something so, you know, so mellow that you're practically asleep. (laughs) (laughs) Think about another song that's big. You know that one, We've We've Got to Get You a Woman? I tell you now we're gonna pull you through There's only one thing left that we can do We gotta get you a woman It's like nothing else can make you feel sure you're alive Yes! So we've got to get you a woman, okay? So he talks, Leroy, boy, and he's talking about like, hey, we're going to get you a woman. And he says all the wonderful things about women and like they can help you. They, they're they good to you and they make you feel good about yourself. And then he has to throw in, they may be stupid, but they sure are fun. And I feel like he feels like he has to throw that little edgy bit in there. Like he can't just say, gosh, women are great. You know, we got to get you a woman because they're wonderful and they'll make you feel good. And hey, let's get me one too because I'm lonely also you know he can't just have that song he has to go boy they're stupid but they're a good time (laughs) (laughs) he's gonna get that in there and so I feel like he's afraid of being too soft to some extent or Or he just writes a good character study because that's not necessarily Rundgren saying I need to be edgy it's just well this is this character but it could be the edge because as you say well he didn't like the Carol King comparison or at least not as flattering as we think it should be, but. but he also could be just winking at us too because he has a nice sense of humor in a lot of his songs he has humor in the sad ones or in the deep deep ones so things like go ahead ignore me and stuff you know that, that are on some of his cds he has these little jokes and things like that so it, it wouldn't surprise me to find that he just doesn't want to just have it all be one thing because he's not one thing exactly though because people have gone and said well oh he's the guy who writes those pretty ballads they figure oh yeah well he is that one thing if he'd stuck to being just a guitar player or predominantly a guitar player then he might not have been put in that bag but it seems that especially in the 70s if you were a songwriter who played the piano then ah he's that thing okay yeah elton john he's like that elton john those first few years in the 70s great songwriter yeah and he could up tempo it a bit but he's still thought of as oh yeah he's that piano singer songwriter right Um, that happens to be the stuff i like the best that he does myself and when he gets like the saturday nights all right i'm like yeah all right all right i don't see you as saturday night it's all right right. you know with the big glasses and the shiny four foot heels you're not getting in too many fights (laughs) but once again it's a character study no know but for some reason it doesn't translate for me but his soft songs really do and they're just so pretty (laughs) they they are they're very melodic but Rundgren does have I mean obviously every person's got different aspects to them but he's actually able to express it musically and I don't think everyone is as much as you do see musicians breaking out of what is their normal milieu a lot of times they are kind of one-trick ponies Before we go any further, I'd like to show you all a game I made up. This game is called Sounds of the Studio. 
So the last overall topic I wanted to address was there's the implication or the naming of side two being the cerebral side of the album. And I don't know, cerebral, maybe because it has Song of the Viking on it and that's very Gilbert and Sullivan-esque. I prefer to think of side two as... I don't know, the peculiar side of the album, although even that has, I think, is Marlene on that side of the album? I'm not sure. Even that, yeah, I know it is. Yeah. So, yeah, that defies, I, I think it's once again just Todd playing with us. But you know, we've already sort of going to mention that the unusual songs on the album and are on that side, you know, Song of the Viking and I Went to the Mirror. But let's talk about a couple of the other things from that side. So what does side two open with? Who else does this? He breaks the fourth wall. Mm-hmm. As <laughs> Musically speaking, he says, hi, I want to play a game with you. It's called Sounds of the Studio. Now, I'm sure you all recognize this. This is called Hiss. It comes on uh, records that were mastered lousy or uh, mono reprocessed for stereo or any number of things. This, of course, is hum. Peas popping. And here's all these shitty things that happen on some albums, maybe even happen on this album. I want you to hear where poor editing takes place and where there's tape slippage or there's hiss. Listen for it on the album and whoever gets the most wins. And can you think of any other album where the artist stop says i'm going to stop the music i just want to talk to you Let, let's just talk and i'm not talking about live albums I'm talking about studio albums can you think of anything else that's done that yeah not outside of a monty python album no so the only other album that immediately came to my mind was tom petty's full moon fever album after running down a dream on the cd version he talks directly to the listeners saying hello cd listeners We've come to the point in this album where those listening on cassette or records will have to stand up or sit down and turn over the record or tape. So in respect to them, I'm going to just have a few seconds of silence and then introduce side two. Okay, this is where side two of the record would be. This is very, very bizarre. The only other one that comes to mind is on the John Lennon rock and roll album. At the end of the song, just because he talks directly to the audience, he's saying, well, for all of you people out there listening to this fine record, thanks for listening. We've had a wonderful time and that sort of thing. But I can't really think of anything else. I'm sure that there's got to be some other records out there where the artist talks as himself to the audience, not in character of a song. Yeah, the only one I can think of, and it reminded me because of the way he does it, because he's talking about different sounds that you might hear on the album. You know, the Peter and the Wolf with Sean Connery doing the narration? I know the Sir Ralph Richardson and I think there's a David Bowie one. Right, there's a bunch of them. Mm. Because I know on, on the album that my dad had this, and so I grew up listening to it, and it was Sean Connery doing it it's great it's really great if you can find it it's terrific and the other side is like the uh, young young person's person's guide to the orchestra orchestra. so he does that and that it's not the same but it's really quite something that is that piece's raison d'etre is to talk to the uh, the audience I mean look it still counts it still counts I guess it's not the same it's not the same as what you were talking about but I don't know it came to my mind immediately because just because I want to talk about Sean Connery yes yes (laughs) Yes, young people. Uh, Peter came out into the into the meadow, but his grandfather and and his duck shed this. Yes, yes. Never thought we'd be doing that in a love that album episode, but that's fine. It's a 
favorite work of mine too. Yeah, anyway, so, but that is really, really unusual. And you think, where did that come from? It certainly wouldn't have fit on side one, which is a bouquet of ear-catching melodies. This is the <laughs> cerebral side where he's going to start off with, I'm going to talk because it's my album and I can do that. Sort of appeal to that production side of him as well. Mm-hmm. So that's really unusual. And then what does he do? He goes into this all-instrumental tune called Breathless, which is far from my favorite moment on the album. No. Cynthia and Dull. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Includes a little uh, reference, I think, to uh, La Bamba somewhere in the middle of it. It sounds like it's <laughs> the overture for a, an all synth pop rock opera or something like that. But once again, I think the beginning of the 70s when synthesizers were maybe starting to come into their own or it was the new technology. So it was in him thinking, well, I'll experiment a little bit with this. It's not what I want to do overall with the album, but let's just have a little bit of fun. And You've already gone and said, Gary, he was as much about the fun as he was about writing these earnest songs Mm -hmm. about love and heartbreak. It's things like that. It's moments like that that make me think this is his White Album moment. It's that diversity, but it is him having fun. I mean, even on the White Album, they had the continuing story of Bungalow Bill or Wild Honey Pie or Why Don't We Do It in the Road, which would never Mm -hmm. have fitted in on Abbey Road or any other Beatles album. They were, no, let's keep this serious. And the White Album is, eh, let's just do whatever we want. It's true. I I totally get your comparison with the White Album. But, you know, the White Album was, in a way, like sort of a culmination. They had been, what, 1963 was their first album or 62, maybe? 63 was when Please Please Me got released as an album. Okay. So that's their first album. And so for years, they've been, you know, number one, number one. And they put out just an enormous amount of music up to that time. I mean, the White Album has a lot of individual songs in it you know because you have stuff that's more George influenced stuff that's more Paul influenced stuff that's more John more Ringo on the album and and it is very diverse but this is at the end of years of putting out just a ton of songs now Rundgren this is like his first studio album it's just it seems weird it seems early to be this I feel like his he's got a lot of confidence this guy and it's it's not a bad thing it seems early to do one of these sort of self-indulgent albums. Maybe standing on the shoulders of others. Before the Beatles did something like that, maybe other artists wouldn't have thought to do something like that. They didn't have their history, their build-up, them being scrutinised so much by the general public and by every newspaper that went along. And by the time Rundgren comes along, the whole concept of being able to throw a whole bunch of things at the wall and seeing what sticks was Mm -hmm. not a new idea, whereas for the Beatles, it probably was a new idea, within the rock world anyway. Yeah, because I totally I see the White Album. That's a great comparison. I never, I didn't think of it, but it's a terrific thing to point out. It's not his first album. You're right. I did actually know that, and I don't know why I said it was. I mean, it was a big album for him and everything. It's just funny that he put this together. It's so different. It's sort of like Harry Nilsson, again, putting out Nilsson Smilson, and then wanting to put out the one with all the old standards. Touch of Schmilson in the night. 
right? And everybody was like, no, 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 no. You need to do like Schmilson 2 or something <laughs> or something akin to what you just did that did so well. And he's like, no, no, I want to do this other thing. <laughs> well, I keep coming back to Pussycats, but it seems like you know, in the early days of the Beatles, we, under George Martin, they were doing these songs with their level of perfection. And these songs were tight. And by the time they get to the White Album, they think, you know what? We're the Beatles. We can do whatever we want. And they come up with songs which were often sloppy in a good way. And Mm -hmm. you had Nelson doing these perfect Baroque pop songs, like Good Old Chair, in the early Mm -hmm. days. And then he comes to Pussycats and he's coked out of his mind. And he's with John Lennon. John says, you know, do whatever the fuck you want, Harry. (laughs) 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 And they're putting out this album that it's just like i'm doing this for me i'm having fun here and if you want to hear perfection go back and listen to my early albums this is me doing he's doing jimmy cliff's many rivers to cross and he's sounding coked out of his mind and it's not the way jimmy cliff would have imagined it but he felt enough confidence in himself to be able to do this and release an album like that not that i'm saying that rundgren was to that level of being drugged out or anything like that or even that level of sloppiness but he never felt the need to make it so perfect as we've gone and discussed before mm-hmm. the last example i wanted to give of his leaning towards some level of peculiarity which maybe a less confident performer this early in their career wouldn't have done is one of the songs on side two and that's the night the carousel burnt down is my favorite song on this album. Its underlying theme is played on the organ and it goes from 4-4 time to 3-4 time and the organ in the 3-4 time sort of cranks up to sound like a calliope like you'd hear on a carousel. So he's really sort of bringing that spirit, just an amazing melody. But one thing that really is interesting about this song is its lyrical content. I mean, like most of the songs on the album, they're fairly straightforward. You know, I've had a hard life or I really love you, you don't love me or hey, you're really something special or I got up in the morning and I looked in the mirror and I had a big zit on my face. (laughs) I think that there's something a little bit more going on on this song. He sings, I swear you were there when the carousel burned down we were all around and then he says and we all left town the next day there's a subtext and there's a straightforward reading but even with a straightforward reading it's not so obvious so the underlying subtext it could be just something about leaving your old life behind you burnt all your bridges and you just moved on with the rest of your life but even with a straightforward reading of the song it's almost like a detective thing the protagonist the guy who's saying i swear you were there when the carousel burnt down as mm-hmm. if he's pointing the finger at this other person no one ever knew who really did it are you the arsonist but is the singer the arsonist because he's saying yeah we all left town the next day or is it just someone who worked at a carousel or a sideshow and they just pack up their things and they move on to the next town as they do i don't know if it's the most important song in the world to be looking at that level of subtext but i listen to it and i think it's interesting in that regard and it shows that rangren for all the fact that he was 
often trying to prove himself as a great musician, which he is. But this lyric, this seemingly straightforward lyric, also shows what a fantastic wordsmith he was as well. This is a very poetic song, and I absolutely agree with you that it could have quite a few meanings. Because it could just be obviously just symbolic, and just whatever it was they were doing just crashed to the ground and finished, or whatever. Or I mean, it could be the end of a company, the end of a relationship, the end of a family and record company, whatever it is. And you were there when it went down. Remember the fire, the confusion, all that stuff? It's really neat. As you said, he's got the sound of the merry-go-round, the circus sound. I mean, you hear that in other songs when they're talking about some kind of carousel or a boardwalk or something like that. Right. They put it and it's just spot on, you know, do 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 or something like that right in the middle. This isn't that. And it builds to it because there's, there's that sort of thing in the background all the way through it. And then toward the end, it gets a little bit closer to the lyric. And it's interesting because it's sort of the dark. It's like Star Trek doing and they do the matter-antimatter thing and there's the good Spock and the bad Spock and the <laughs> when the good guys are on there they play the regular Star Trek theme and when the bad guys are on there they play like a slightly off version of it that's kind of what I felt like this one it was like a darker slightly off version of a circusy kind of melody well how he achieves that is through slightly speeding it up and moving the sound from ear to ear as if you're watching the carousel whiz past I completely get Get that dark tone. Yeah. Um, just sort of thinking about this now, in films or in songs, a train is often a metaphor for going to an uncertain but hopefully better future. Then the carousel must be about my life is just going round and round and I'm not getting anywhere. So I burnt it down and moved on. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I told, that makes sense. I'm looking to get my uh, honorary doctorate in <laughs> song, song interpretation. So <laughs> anyone out there wants to give it to me. <laughs> And he left out the stay away from carnies, you know. Oh, out. they're evil. <laughs> As I want to point out, if you're new to this show, we don't go track by track. We look for individual themes and then try to find songs that relate to examples of what it is that we're talking about. But before we conclude, I've already got to mention my favorite song now. I know that you have a favorite song on the album, so we should probably uh, bring that into the conversation. Yeah, and it's um, I Saw the Light. can't help it i just love that song and i know it's really poppy and all that kind of stuff but it's just it's so pretty and i like how he does it as a very um i mean it's a very poppy kind of melody do 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 you know and mm -hmm. and there's nothing terribly deep in it and there's a solo that's sort of eh. it reminds me of early like beatles solos <laughs> yeah sure because they're very simple um and they just like okay here's the space for the solo you have it this time oh i do oh shit okay <laughs> and then you know <laughs> well, i'll think of something you know to me that's what some of the early beatles ones sort of sound like to me not just beatles but a lot of the british invasion kind of bands of the time okay solo time and they go do 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 okay great that's kind of what this one reminds me of to some extent 
he does a really nice job of singing it. There are certain things that he does. For some reason, the end, when he says, and I ran out before, but I won't do it anymore. Mm. I just love the way that sounds. And it has to do with the fact that I feel like in lyrics, a lot of times, and obviously it rhymes, but I feel like a lot of songwriters wouldn't have done that. They would have done something about like, I'm sorry I ran out, I won't ever do it again. And, and something that sounds a little bit more formal. And this is very, and I ran out before, but I won't do it anymore. It sounds very much like a conversation, which is what I like about it. I also There's, like the fact that he's maybe an unreliable narrator because this could be a guy yeah. who's been an absolute bastard, a real shit heel. And he says, yep. he says, let me in. I won't do it again, I promise. Um, yep. I was only recently re-watching Raging Bull with Robert De Niro as Jake LaMotta and how he talks his way back into his wife's home or into her heart but then we know what a shit heel he becomes and once the song is finished we don't know Todd Rundgren might work at might walk out on earth again if it suits him so we get this pretty melody with that sounds all hopeful and optimistic but that one line is oh well this is a little bit dark but I like a dark connotation within a happy sounding major key melody that's a real good line that you brought out but what you said I think is totally appropriate and I think you hear that in a lot of his songs actually because even like I, it wouldn't have made any difference which is on side one of this album which is actually the next song after I saw the light I can't prove that I was true or something like that but it wouldn't have made any difference if you really loved me and you're and you're like you know what buddy <laughs> but he has that in quite a few songs where he says come on <laughs> you can take me back I won't do it again you know and mm-hmm. I wonder how much of Todd is actually in his songs <laughs> where <Wow>. he's <laughs> but you never know you never know he, he could be a lovely lovely man he's a funny but, funny man he is pretty funny. He has a nice sense of humor in these songs, and he does he, he does funny things with words. He's not he's not as funny as like a Warren Zevon. Right. Oh man, I love Warren Zevon. So yeah, well, I mean, Rungren's really interesting because you know when I was doing research, the one other thing that has nothing to do with this album. Sure. It happened that I've been rewatching a series, actually watching for the first time an old series that was on years ago called Crime Story. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I haven't watched it, but I know of it. Okay. But for anyone who's listening who is not familiar, it's a Michael Mann-produced series from the 90s, I believe, or maybe the 80s. The 80s. It actually was the 80s, like the 86, 87. And it's set in like about 1961 or two. And it's about this, like an organized crime task force or something like that. Or, you know, they're cops, they're detectives, specially put together to fight organized crime. They're in Chicago, I think. And uh, it stars Dennis Farina, Mm -hmm. who's fantastic. And Bill Smitrovich, another guy who's really good. It's got a lot of people. It's got Ted Levine, you know. It puts the lotion on its back, you know. Oh, from Silence of the Lambs. Oh, wow. He's in, okay. it. He's in it, too. It's like an early role for him. And it's fantastic. And it's all, like, the settings are perfect. And the themes and the music in it is is excellent. The um, theme is Runaway, the Del Shannon song. And it's done by him, but it's a different version than the one that they always played on the radio. So I think they must have re-recorded it for the series, perhaps. But... But there's a lot of really good music that was of the time. 
And um, the musical director early on in the series is Todd Rundgren. Wow. Which is interesting. And only because I was just watching the show did I realize that. And it was kind of neat. And after he left as musical director, Al Cooper took over. Ah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's great. So it's just kind of neat that they had real musicians finding the music that would be date appropriate, you know, that would be of the time and of the uh, the mood of the series and stuff like that. So they actually hired, you know, Todd Rundgren and Al Cooper to make sure that their music was appropriate. I mean, that seems to have been a common thing, I guess, in a lot of HBO series over the years. You know, The Sopranos would make mm-hmm. use of that sort of music that was appropriate, something related to the story of the episode. In um, Deadwood, would always end with a contemporary recording of a country song of some sort that was appropriate to the theme so yeah okay. maybe, so maybe crime story was a was a groundbreaker in in uh, that sort of thing yeah i mean and it didn't last so it makes me wonder if <laughs> if they spent a lot of money on that and that's why <laughs> right one of the reasons why the series didn't last is cuz i think the series only made two seasons maybe three the crime story it's really good and the music is excellent it's a combination of different stuff cuz they have like the doo-wop kind of stuff but also um, one of the characters is a big jazz nut. So right. they have Dave Brubeck songs in there and other, you know, a lot more intellectual jazz type stuff, you know. Sure, sure. So, yeah, really neat series. But the, the fact that Todd Reimer was involved was kind of a surprise to me. Man who wears many hats. Well, apparently. I mean, well, the, the bands that he produced are really different. I mean, Meatloaf and XTC. Yeah, I that- can't believe we've had this whole show and we've not really discussed in any depth Bad Out of Hell or Skylarking. That's a subject for a different time. Actually, sorry, Bad Out of Hell will never get discussed on this show formally. Scott, <laughs> sorry, I can't stand that. But Skylarking probably will at some stage. <laughs> So let's sort of conclude this off. Uh, mm-hmm. Just sum up. Just, I think the last thought that comes to my head is that this album seems to be beloved of a lot of Rundgren fans, and yet it doesn't seem like it's pantheon. When we think of early 70s albums, you know, there's whatever, there's Tapestry, there's uh, Machine Head by Deep Purple, there's Zeppelin IV, you know, hundreds of albums. But mm. Rundgren beloved by his fans but this is an album that i think should just be a pantheon album whether you've heard it or not everyone should have heard of it and i'm not quite sure why it wasn't or maybe it is pantheon and i'm just not aware of it i'm not paying enough attention i don't think rundgren is as pantheon you know i mean as he probably should be and and maybe it is the fact that he's so eclectic you know that he didn't stick to one thing and do that one thing really well he did many things really well but you know, maybe the fact that, that his album is so different, like this this album in particular, if you start off listening to the first song and you hear I Saw the Light and you're like, oh, wow, okay, that's cool. Then you hear it wouldn't have made any difference and you think, okay, that's different from the first one, but, but I like it. And then you hear Wolfman Jack and then Cold Morning Light. You know, I mean, it just, they're all so very different. I guess critically it, it did well. I mean, the reviews of it 
were good and all that, but maybe it just wasn't accessible for people because it just varied so much, so wildly from style to style within the same album. Bottom line for me is it's just, it's always melodically accessible. And I think even if we got little stylistic flourishes like we've been discussing throughout this episode, but I would have thought bottom line is if someone came along and wasn't necessarily a Rundgren fan or knew who he was, they'd say, right, well, can I hum these melodies? And for all the performance differences, there's so many songs on this album that just the melody will stick in your head or you'll be able to whistle it or hum it. And that's what a lot of people will buy a record for, not necessarily because it's the latest cool thing to do or because they want to hear some great guitar work or they want to dig into lyrical themes, but they just want a song that they can whistle. And I Saw the Light, for instance, is that sort of song where you'll go away whistling or you'll hum it and that's why this is sort of a mystery to me that these very memorable songs they're not part of the conversation in the general populace it might be you know people like us hardcore fans or casual fans that will that will talk about it but i I just would have thought it would have been part more of the wider conversation, but what do I know? Yeah, I mean, they do play them on the radio. I mean, those two, uh, well, I saw the light and hello, it's me, are the ones. And if they're doing 80s, then they'll do that bang the drum all day, which I don't really care for that much. But I saw the light, you you can hear it, but it's, yeah, sort of easy listening (laughs) is what it shows up on now, I think. Right, right. Easy listening, people have to listen to something too, so might as well be (laughs) Rundgren. Right. Oh, there is some stuff like I listen on Sirius to Bridge, the station that's called Bridge. And it's called Bridge because it's sort of halfway between harder rock and really soft rock. So it's somewhere in the middle. And they they play his stuff on there. From the man that brought us the Naz, Runt, Hello, It's Me, Something Anything, A Wizard, A True Star, Utopia, and so much more, comes the Hermit of Mink Hollow. The Hermit of Mink Hollow is Todd Rundgren's new album. All right, well, I think with that, we can uh, conclude our episode of Love That Album, talking about something, anything, and just to show how diverse we are, we went to all manner of places, all manner of topics, not just this album, because that's how this show rolls. I've got to say thank you so much for uh, jumping into this, Kerry. I I remember this was going to be something I was going to discuss with Heather, and then she said, oh, no, I want to discuss the kinks, and you sent me a note saying, no, I'll discuss Todd Rankin, so thank you very much for jumping into the fray. Well, great. You're welcome. I'm always happy to talk to you about music or movies and music, and I appreciate you inviting me. Well, you'll be back for sure. We'd love to have you back on this one. We've got to have you back on the film podcast as well on See Here. Oh, fantastic. Uh, And so once more, if uh, people want to follow your old blogging activities and your new forthcoming blogging activities when you make time for them again. (laughs) Um, My uh, blog is Prowler Needs a Jump at wordpress.com. Um, I'm on Twitter uh, at echidnabot. <laughs> Are you still doing the commentary? Because I think last time we spoke, you said you were doing a commentary for VHS 
director VHS type movies. Are you still doing that, or have I got that wrong? We do a Twitter tweet along. Is that what yep. you meant? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You still doing yeah, that? We do. Uh, B movie maniacs. We meet every Friday night at 11 p.m. Eastern USA time. We talk about like the brain that wouldn't die, or the Incredible Melting Man, or Monster a Go Go. Well, not Monster a Go Go because that is a nightmare. It's so terrible. Uh, the Creeping Terror. You know, other films like that, and we all watch them on YouTube. It's all stuff that's available for free. And anybody that wants to join in, you just everyone presses play at 11 o'clock and we uh, follow the same hashtag, be movie maniacs. It gets silly. We sometimes point out funny things in the movies and just have a good time. We're making fun of the movies, but it's because we love them so much. Definitely with affection. You can make fun of your family. No one else can, but you can. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So there you go. There's your ways to uh, find and read Kerry's activities. And that B-movie maniac thing sounds like such a hoot. Um, it is fun. You should, if you're ever, I don't know what time it is when it's 11 o'clock Friday night, what time it is in Australia. Uh, well, East Coast Australian time, it would be 2 o'clock, 2 p.m. Saturday afternoon, I think. Oh, well, see, it's better for you than me because it's 11 o'clock Friday night and I've been working all day. I'm exhausted. Yeah. So just housekeeping things, if you wish to find multiple ways to recommend to your friends to listen to this podcast, and I certainly hope that you do, you can search for Love That Album in iTunes, as long as that's going to remain up. I don't know. I hear rumors that it's going to be taken down. I don't know if it's being replaced with something else, but there's iTunes, there's Stitcher, there's Spotify, or you can just download us from the website lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. I try to get one episode out a month for myself, and Eric Reanimator puts out his compilation edition episode also the month. So you get you know, basically two episodes of album discussion or music discussion talk from the website every month, we hope, when we're not being slack. And what else can I tell you? If you wish to join the Facebook group, you can go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash love that album and feel free to talk about any music that you're listening to, any concert that you went to, soundtracks that you enjoyed, which drugs your favorite performer is doing, any of that <laughs> sort of stuff. It's great. We're, we're, we're happy to talk about it all. And I think that is it. So once again, Kerry, thank you so much for being part of this really really appreciate your time and hopefully have you back before the end of the year and just until next time please people be nice to each other because the world is in a mess at the moment i say this every time the world is in a mess we just need to listen to more music listen to more songs i know it sounds a bit simplistic but if everyone sang along to their favorite song i don't know that the world would be as fucked up as they are unless of course the song is pretty horrible and deplorable lyrically but but never mind. if we all sang i saw the light we might be better <laughs> yay yay all right so until next time look after each other recommend the podcast to someone give your loved ones a hug and we'll see you soon all the best cheers It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 